Good morning. No worries, it's supposed to do that, I think, although we had a mic problem, so maybe that was my fault. Um, It's good to be here. Uh, This morning we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, so you want to turn there and we'll pray here in just a moment. Uh, As you turn there, there are parallel accounts of this passage in both Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9, Uh, but Mark in his account is quite vivid in the details that he adds, and so I want to uh, take up the time uh, to set our eyes on Mark, and I'll refer to the others as we go along. Uh, With that, let's, let's ask the Lord's help in this time of our worship service. Father, we thank you. You love us. We've just sung praises to your name. Uh, We love to come in to worship you because you've set that desire in our hearts. And as this part of our worship service, we come to your word. We ask that you would help us. You've promised that just as you send rain and snow to water the earth, uh, that it brings forth vegetation, it gives seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall your word be as it goes out. It will accomplish the very thing for which you purpose will not return to you empty. And so uh, we hold on, we cling to that promise and ask uh, that you would indeed do that in this time, that your spirit would conform us, uh, give us faith to respond and to go out from here as people uh, who look more and more like your son, Jesus. Uh, We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 14, hear the word of God. As we read this, uh, Jesus has just come down with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, from the Mounts of Transfiguration, and they come into the commotion of this event. Verse 14, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. And they ran to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Uh, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing, him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything 
but prayer. There are a number of ways to enter into any text of scripture. Uh, I want to begin this morning by considering this boy. Uh, We are told about his condition from the perspective of his dad. He's an only child and he has, has been, is tormented by this evil spirit. It's made him to be both deaf and mute and to also suffer from these debilitating seizures. In Matthew's account, in the ESV translation, it says that the boy is an epileptic. And I just want to take up two uh, issues that may come, may arise uh, because of that. Uh, really two heirs on uh, either end of a perspectrum. The first is that for some of us, we may be tempted to think of that description, epileptic, in the terms of a modern uh, medical diagnosis. But uh, we need to be careful not to think necessarily in those terms uh, because the, the word that Matthew chooses is he is, is trying to describe not the source or the cause of this condition, but to get at its nature or, or its severity. Uh, all the language of all the Gospels, all three Gospel writers use very strong language to describe this boy's condition. And, and so he, he's, he's trying to say that this is a madness. In fact, the word that, that Matthew uses literally means moonstruck, and it's elsewhere translated as a lunatic. It's a madness. It's a terrible, awful experience, and, and that's what Matthew is getting at. Uh, the other issue uh, to take up, just real briefly, is that at various points and in various ways, a harm has been done uh, to individuals, to groups of individuals, uh, by assuming that various biological or psychological disorders are the direct result of things such as demonic possession, or probably more often, a direct result of personal sin. And I just mention this not to say that demonic possession isn't real, it is, uh, nor am I trying to get at that there's not direct consequences for our sin. There are, uh, but it's just to remind us that we are finite, that we are not omniscient, and that we don't always know the source or the cause. And so we have to be careful in our conclusions so that we might not rush into judgment that may inflict undue harm. For in this case, all three gospel writers are quite clear that the source or the cause is this evil spirit. Uh, in Matthew's account, he says that, that the boy suffers terribly. He suffers terribly. The, the, the demon would seize him and would throw him to the ground. His, his body would become rigid. His teeth would grind. He would foam at the mouth. He was shattered. That's how Luke describes His experience, this demon, shatters him. In Romans chapter 7, Paul uh, says, calls sin. He says it's exceedingly sinful, sinful beyond measure. We see that here, a little boy, shattered. Still, uh, through all that, that's not enough for this evil spirit. For sin is far more despicable than this. The exceeding sinfulness of sin is most clearly seen in the goal. It would cast them into fire to be burned, into water to drown. The goal was death. Destruction. A mourning without hope. Sin. It is ugly. 
Sin is dark, evil, vicious. And we see this boy, we read of him, and we see, we feel the utter sinfulness of sin. There's not one part of our world that is not pierced by the hideous nature of it. Each of us feel the deep, visceral impact of sin. We are confronted with it at every point in our lives. We read headlines from the past month or so, and what do we read? We read of natural disasters, calamities. We read of of mudslides in Sri Lanka, an earthquake in China, and along with it, this tiring search for missing family members. We read of conflicts all across the globe and the mass slaying of men, women, and children by those who seem undisturbed by their actions and ready to employ the next child soldier into their efforts. We read of the horrendous statistics of those affected by death and deadly diseases and malnourishment and abuse and so much more, many more results of a fallen world. And we read all these headlines and we realize that we haven't even gotten to our own nation yet. We haven't even gotten to our own states, our own community, our own workplaces our own schools, our own church, our own families, and even our own hearts. See, because sin is not just something ugly and out there, but it resides within. It is our condition inbred in us as part of who we are. And so when we see the sinfulness of sin and we and see the ugliness of it and are repulsed even by it, too often what we find is that our response to it is not one of faith in God, but of unbelief. I look at my own life and what do I see, but my own responses of unbelief, whether I'm looking at headlines or I'm just Looking at the mirror. Unbelief. And we see the reality of this in our text in verse 19. Because Jesus, he laments. And he says, oh faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Another way of translating the first words of this, you, you faithless generation, would be you unbelieving generation. He also said, you twisted generation. That's recorded in both Matthew and Luke. You twisted generation. The word twisted carries the idea of perversion. It's a turning, a twisting, a turning away in the wrong direction. Rather than turning to God in faith, they've turned away to unbelief. And we may wonder, who is Jesus talking to? Uh, Various commentators um, discuss this. Uh, Some say it's the scribes. Uh, these teachers of the law, these opponents of Jesus, they've ta- taken opportunity in the disciples' failure to undermine and to undercut Jesus. Uh, others say it's the disciples. Uh, some include the crowd and even this dad. And while the pronoun is a bit ambiguous, I tend to agree with our very own resident scholar, William D. Vogler, in saying that Jesus 
speaks of all. Jesus speaks of all. Jesus speaks to all, including us. Because the issue at hand is faith. And here we see these disciples and this dad, and, and we see the insidious nature of sin. It's, it's subtle, deceitful, covert. It lurks and lingers in places and ways that we wouldn't imagine. I mean, these disciples, this dad, they have good intentions. The disciples, they just want to deliver this boy, restore peace to the family, to order the chaos. And this dad, he just loves his son and he wants life for him. But sin resides within, has intimacy in the soul. And so even in these very good desires, sin takes opportunity to corrupt twist, to pervert into these forms of unbelief. First, we consider these disciples, their unbelief comes in the form of self-reliance. Now, the boy is brought to them and they may have had good reason for believing that they would be able to cast this demon out. Uh, Because as Rick read earlier, previously Jesus had sent the disciples out to do the work of ministry. And he gave them authority over these unclean spirits. And so I suspect that when the boy is brought to them, they had confidence they could, they could indeed do this for the boy. And we see, but this is their very problem. Their confidence rested not in their dependence upon God to cast the demon out, but in themselves, in their own power. They ask, Jesus, at the very end, privately, they ask him, why could we not cast it out? See, somewhere along the way, they lost sight that the authority over these unclean spirits, over these demons, was not one they inherently held themselves, but was granted to them by Christ. And so instead of depending and going to him and relying upon his power granted to them, they turned away. And to self-reliance, to independence. And they failed. Jesus also responded to them. In Matthew, he records this. Uh, an answer to their question. That Jesus says, because, you're not able to cast it out, because of your little faith. You see, their faith was small. And their faith small because their faith was in their own power. And their power is small. And this is an uncommon response. Whether it was Adam and Eve in the garden pursuing wisdom apart from God, or whether it was the people of Babel seeking their own notoriety and security in their efforts to build this great city and this tower for themselves, Or it was David finding his assurance in the size of his army. Or Peter, before Jesus was arrested, being all too confident that when everyone else fell away, he would remain faithful. And how easy it is for for us to fall into our various forms 
of self-reliance. I mean, there are a myriad of ways that we seek autonomy and independence from God. Actually believing that we're able to get the benefits of God apart from God. And as Christians, we may dabble in the Bible some. We may tinker with a bit of spiritual conversation or prayer, but, but uh, too often I find that I only run to God in emergencies. And even then, I only go to find a magical solution to ease my troubled soul for the things that I was not first able to fix on my own. Our rule of truth and reality is based upon our own ability to comprehend or to reason. And so that means that our assumptions about what can and cannot be true trump humility before God's revelation. Our affections and life experiences become our standard of right and wrong rather than God himself as the source of righteousness. Our ability to acquire friends, to gain laughter, to place ourselves on the receiving end of praise becomes our value and our worth and our dignity rather than the image of God in which we are made. I mean, we rely upon our charisma, upon our intelligence, upon our wisdom. We rely on our money, our position, our title, our parenting, even our own expressions of religion. Recently, MSN Money made up some standards and then ranked our very own Lawrence, Kansas, as the fifth most educated city in America. I wonder, has our education led us to faith and deeper dependence upon God or just more self-reliance? Well, the father, he too is trying to come to grips with the harsh reality of the sinfulness of sin. And his response is not self-reliance, at least not as we read. His is a more of a loss of hope. It's a desperation and understandably so. I mean, as a father, when your child hurts, everything in you screams, heal, protect, save. And I can't imagine this man's experience as he watched helpless day in and day out as his son suffered so terribly. And we sense his abandoning of hope in verse 22. He comes to Jesus and he asks, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. Whatever confidence that he had previously when he brought his son to the disciples was now quickly fleeing from him. You see, it was understood in the time that a disciple of a rabbi represented the rabbi himself. And so when these disciples were unable to, to deliver his boy, his confidence that Jesus could do anything to help had become quite uncertain. You add into that these enemies of Christ who are hurling their lies and false accusations in this moment. And I suspect that his, his ability to hope was great. 
And Jesus, in verse 23, he rests on these words. He, he quotes him. He says, if you can, it's as if he looks at them and says, do you not know who you're talking to? If you can, I am the eternal son of God, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. If you can, I am the giver and sustainer of life. Everything moves and breathes and has its being because I am, if you can, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the mighty one of Israel. Have you not heard of what I've done and the promises that I kept? Do you not know of my mighty right arm? If you can, I am the sovereign one. I am the prince of peace, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. I am great. I am powerful. I am compassionate. I am your hope. Don't abandon that because I can. All things are possible for the one who believes. And the father, he hears this and he confesses in verse 24. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, I really do, but I don't. The sinfulness of sin has taken its toll and I'm just not sure that I can hope anymore. Despair has set in. And as much as I want to and even do, I can't. And I don't. His confession, I believe, help my unbelief, is a candid plea for help at the point where his faith is ready to fail again and again and again. And this struggle with hope, it's, it's different than self-reliance. It's different. But it's still a struggle of unbelief. We lose hope. We wonder, Jesus, if you can. It's that inward struggle between what we say to be true. Even know, we know it's true. But still there's these doubts, this hopelessness that haunt our souls as we struggle to hope. We believe, but we're also not sure that we can believe. We're not even sure how to believe. We Doubt that God really will forgive a sin such as mine. Or that he really can reconcile a broken relationship. That he will strengthen a faltering faith. Save a wayward child. Comfort our weary minds. Heal a painful past. Or even honor our godly but difficult decisions. I want to ask this morning, in what are you struggling to hope? Where have you given up in doubting God's presence, His power, His compassion? We follow the lead of this dad's confession. 
Because both of these responses, self-reliance, loss of hope, really require of us the need with the Lord's help come confessing our unbelief and turning to Jesus in faith. See, if, if the word twisted is a turning away in the wrong direction, then the opposite is repentance. It's a turning back, a returning to Christ. And this really is the call of the gospel, isn't it? When Jesus began his earthly ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said these words, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And we turn to Jesus because he is the turning point. He is the turning point. He's the center of our story. When he enters into the scene, things happen. Things change. People run to him in amazement. Mark is sure to highlight for us that the person of Jesus himself provokes astonishment, amazement. And he takes this word, this little word amazement that's translated amazement, and he adds this little preposition to it. The preposition, it means out or out of, right? So we have amazement, but that's not what's happening here. What's happening is something beyond it, something greater than that, something more than that. They are not just astonished. They are utterly astonished. That's why your uh, ESV is trying to get at this. They say they were greatly amazed. But I love the NIV translation of this because it says the people were overwhelmed with wonder. Overwhelmed with wonder. At the end of Luke's account of this. In fact, the very last line of Luke's account, this is what he says. And we were all astonished at the majesty of God. See, this is what happens in the presence of God. This is what happens when Jesus enters in, we're amazed. We sit, we stand, we kneel in awe. We wonder. We are astonished because he is the very majesty of God. We turn to him in faith. Because what we realize is that him and him alone is the one who has the power and the compassion to save. He is the one with the power and the compassion to save. In verse 21, his compassion jumps off the page at us with this little question. Jesus asks this father, how long has this been happening to him? How long has your little boy suffered so terribly? This is not a question of information as if Jesus doesn't know the answer. It's a question of compassion. It's a question of love, of care, of concern. And this dad, he says from childhood, from childhood, Some of you know this dad's cry from childhood. You have suffered at the hands of the sinfulness of sin. 
Or you've, you've watched your own child or your brother or your sister or your friend or another loved one or your roommate or your parents even suffer from childhood. Jesus, he's no distant observer here. This is an intimate question. His entering into humanity and confronting sin and death on our behalf is because he has the compassion to look at this dad and his boy and to ask how long. Children of God, this is your Jesus. He sees you. He has not forgotten you. And it's okay to be astonished at the compassion of Christ because he looks at you and he asks, how long? We bask in that, revel in it. And this compassion, it's not idle. Jesus responds in verse 19. He commands, bring him to me. And, and here, this is the remarkable grace of the passage. Because even though he laments their faithlessness and their unbelief, he still acts on behalf of this boy and his dad. His action is not dependent upon their faithfulness, but upon his sovereign mercy. That's grace. And they bring the boy to him. And he convulses and he falls to the ground. And in seeing this, Jesus rebukes this evil spirit. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And this is a final authoritative command of power. And the demon, he has to obey. He has to obey. And so he convulses the boy terribly. He cries out and he leaves him. And then the boy... He lies on the ground like a corpse. Mark is sure to highlight for us that those observing this moment saw what appeared to be a dead boy. And then Jesus takes him by the hand and life floods into the moment. This is not, biologically speaking, a resurrection event. But Mark is very intentional about what he records and how he records. And so when he says that he was like a corpse and they they thought they saw what appeared to be this dead boy, he is giving us a picture of a movement from death to life with Jesus standing in between as a source and the cause of that movement. And we realize when we see this, that this really is a mini drama of the reality of the gospel. The boy's sentence was a death sentence. But in Jesus, that sentence turns to life. Redemption becomes a reality. And hope, hope reigns. Hope reigns. And thus, What do we see 
When we gaze at the cross, but the power and the compassion of God. It was because of his great love, because of his compassion, that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and confronted sin and death on our behalf. And the one suffering at the cross, he had to be powerful, able to save, because sin, we know by experience, is a mighty force. It convulses terribly. But the one who overcomes such sin, who conquers, he is beyond sin's equal. His power becomes evident in the resurrection. And so uh, regardless of, of our circumstances, regardless of how sinful sin is in and around us, we stand dependent and assured that all those who turn to Jesus in faith are indeed delivered from this sentence of death that rightfully belongs to sinners like you. And like me. For we in Christ have been brought from death into life, eternal life in Christ. Now, in this, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not uh, declaring to you that if you will just have enough faith that all will be well tomorrow, that God will change your circumstances however you desire. Don't hear that. What I am declaring to you is that when our faith rests in Christ, that ultimately all is well. Ultimately, all is well. See, God may grant to us today graces, these graces such as happiness, health, security, peace, a zeal for him to read the word, to pray. But he may also remove or withhold such graces so that we might depend more and more upon his grace. And we measure his, the power and the compassion of God, not by our circumstances, not by the sinfulness of sin that we see and feel around us, not by our graces, by but, but by what he has done and made known to us in the gospel. It's the power and the compassion of Christ. I began sermon with a little boy and his dad. I want to end this morning with a little girl and her dad. When my family lived in St. Louis, um, my daughter Jaden began to have night tears. And uh, I'll never forget it. It was quite a shock. Uh, the first time I'm, I'm awoken from uh, my, my sleep with this terrifying scream of my daughter, Jaden, screaming, Daddy, Mommy. 
And you know your child screams, and, and, and you realize, and I realize in that moment that this was something entirely different, that something was tormenting her, and I had no idea what it was. And there was nothing in that moment when I heard that scream for help that was going to prevent me from getting to my little girl. And so I jumped from my bed, and I, I spring and, and race into her room, and I just pick her up and begin to hold her and comfort her and tell her, it's okay because daddy's here. My heart had overflowed with love and compassion. In that moment, I was willing to do anything to help her. The reality is there wasn't much I could do except to frantically stumble into her room and, and, and just hold her. And this went on for a while. And uh, we kept doing this routine. And until one day, my wife came to me and she said, you know, Ryan, I always know I'm in trouble when she starts. You know, Ryan, some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, Ryan, you pray every night before Jaden goes to bed. Why don't you pray about our night terrors? That's a great question. You see, why my running to her seemed like a noble response for me as a dad. It was an utter failure. I was so busy running to save her that I failed to show her that it is Jesus who has the power and the compassion to save. I was so caught up in her and, let's admit, really my own experience, the sinfulness of sin, that I failed to take her to the Savior of sinners. I was so afraid of the power of sin that if I prayed and, and nothing changed, that somehow unbelief would set in in my little four-year-old's heart, that I failed to rest in the infinite power of Christ. I failed to take my child to the throne of God. Utter failure. And so with my wife's kind but pointed rebuke, we prayed. Now, I don't know what happened next. I really don't. I don't know if her night terrors went away immediately, if it was days or even weeks down the road. And you know, in some ways, I'm glad that I can't remember. Because I don't think that is the point at all. See, the point is that we turn to Jesus in faith. And it is this need to respond in humble prayer that has the final word on this story about my daughter's night terrors and her failing, scrambling father. And for the disciples, for us, this is God's final word as well. In verse 29, Jesus says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. See, the right response 
to the exceeding sinfulness of sin is prayer. Because that's what faith does. Faith prays. Faith bends our knees. Faith bows our heads. And faith raises our voices in prayer. Prayer to the one with the power and the compassion to save. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed, astonished by your compassion, your power, that you have entered into humanity to confront sin, to confront death that rightly belongs to us, and to give us life. You've brought us from death to give us life. What an incredible thing. And God, as we continue to live out our, our, our days trusting and following you and we see the horrendous nature of sin, God, help us. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to respond by turning to you, trusting you, clinging to you, placing our hope in you and you alone. God, I pray as we go out from here this morning that you uh, would help us to carry this gospel truth with us personally and into the world that they might know the very majesty of God. And God, this morning, we lift up uh, so many who are among us suffering uh, various illnesses, disease, and sickness. God, would you strengthen them and comfort them? You are the great physician. Would you heal? God, we rejoice this morning over the birth of uh, Ruth Noel Nye. Praise you that she has come and also ask that you uh, would heal her little body as uh, her white blood cell counts are elevated. God, we thank you for Josh and Carol and pray that you would strengthen them as a family uh, in this time. God, we think of Mike Bartlow and his family as his father Rex has passed and pray uh, that you would comfort them uh, with the gospel. Remind them of the great hope that's in Christ and that they would cling to you and that the gospel would go forward in their family. Father, we think of, lift up to you our little Mecky. God, pray that you will heal and protect, help her as she uh, undergoes further testing this week. God, for so many more uh, that are suffering in various ways, rejoicing, we rejoice with them, we mourn with those who mourn, we sing for those who are unable. Uh, God, be with them. All this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, his power, compassionate name 
of Christ. Amen.